Hello, my name is Joe, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Ryan Bowen and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. We honour and acknowledge the traditional owners of the unceded land on which this podcast is recorded and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm doing the introduction to this episode because our guest is my earliest and most influential teacher, Richard Lidikish. I started learning inkbrush painting from Richard when I was about seven and as you'll hear, his classes are really an introduction to yoga and meditation as well as art. Richard has been practicing yoga for almost 50 years after discovering creative dance and yoga with Mrs. Mangiamelli at the iconic Mangala Studios while he was at art school. We discuss the early days of Mangala Studios and how it has evolved, as well as Richard's earlier teaching career. We also delve into the history and practice of Sumie, inkbrush painting and calligraphy and its connection to Zen Buddhism and meditation. Creativity and the exploration of our true nature have always been central to Richard's movement and art practice. One of the topics we discuss is the Unfolding Self Workshop, which combines yoga, brush and ink techniques, meditation, sound and poetry to facilitate awareness of an inner, fluid and interconnected world where the outer layers of the ego melt away to reveal our inner nature. Richard has an auditory processing disorder which makes him very sensitive to electronic equipment, which we speak about in our conversation. We've actually wanted to speak to Richard since we began the podcast, and I'm so glad we finally found a way that would work for him. So rather than an online chat or at our home studio surrounded by our technology, this interview took place in his small garden studio, shaded by a huge jacaranda tree and lined with many, many years worth of paintings and calligraphy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Yoga Australia, registering teachers and training courses to ensure that everyone in Australia has access to quality yoga teachers. So, Richard Lidicott, it's such a pleasure and an honour to talk to you today because you've taught me so much from such a young age about yoga and creativity and meditation, and I'm really delighted to be able to share your insights with a wider audience. Perhaps you could start by telling us how you discovered yoga. Through art. I had done three years of a part-time art course at Philip Preston Institute, it was called back in those days, and it was a, a very kind of demanding school in the sense that other schools that were around were quite technically orientated, and Preston was different. It had so people who were active there were quite avant-garde contemporary artists, and they were demanded that you respond to the current issues. So I was very kind of concerned about art because art was the subject that got me through high school because academically I wasn't very good. So when I went to Preston, I started there and I had three years of it and then I went to do a full-time course. And one of the things about the place was how liberal it was. So you could do outside subjects and, and you could choose a subject. Someone was actually doing gardening as a subject and I had to kind of justify it and explain why. But I decided I wanted to do something along the lines of getting into the nature of kind of looking at where creativity began. And so I was kind of in two minds. One was Zen meditation, Zen, and the other one was yoga. And I've always had this kind of, I suppose, connection between the body-mind thing going. So ultimately yoga won out. So I did it actually as a subject at art school. And when I wrote my statements and discussed issues with my 
tutors at our school, it would always come back to creativity and the birth of creativity, where it begins, where does something become original, where does it become authentic. So the yoga was there as a way of, of finding that. And so was your first yoga class at Mangala Studios? As a student, yes. Yeah, so I met my teacher, Mrs Manjimali, at the end of 1971 to discuss that proposition of, as a subject because she had to write back to the Institute. And she, I hadn't met her before and it was quite a strong experience and I kind of felt that she knew me. You know, I felt, you know, this is very weird. So that was the beginning of a very long connection with her and then from the teaching of her teaching, which went on through her, her students after she passed away. So the first class was in February of 71 with her and it was amazing, but I was very disconnected. As she said, I didn't know my left side from my right side. I was very, pretty hopeless. So I was on my head. So that was the big problem. I was, you know, so preoccupied with that, I became very unconnected to the body, but gradually I learned it. So it was at Mangala, yes. Could you describe one of Mrs. Nanjimali's classes? Oh, my God. Is it possible? <laughs> Going back a while. Well, she had a strong German accent and she had a certain way with language, like she, she bent English around a certain way so that ordinarily you wouldn't understand what she meant. However, she had such a presence you did understand what she meant somehow. And they were, I suppose they were very, well, put it this way, I was studying with her for 12 years, 14 years actually, but I would be in an ecstatic state every day over those 12-year period. I'm not saying that I walked around in an ecstatic state all of the time, but there would be a time when I would come into that state and it would be a circuit breaker so that whatever the normal kind of everyday thinking went on, then it would actually change because of that. And that was initially because of the talks with her. I had a lot of talks with her because she had free time in those days and she was in between classes. So we often had a lot of talks together. So with that and the classes, that put me into that kind of state. And I was able to finish the course. I academically had just a list of failures at school and it wasn't until I was 59 that I actually realised I had a learning difficulty, which was auditory processing problem and also a poor working memory. But under her teaching, things changed, and I actually got to the end of all my studies and passed the subjects. So her, her influence was quite significant. And so since you mentioned this being a key area of topic and interest, what did you discover about the nature of creativity? Oh, okay. Initially, when, when I went to the, I was looking at creativity at art school. And at art school, it was in the context of, of art itself. So it wasn't life, it was kind of within the context of art. So you had to kind of look in terms of artists and relate that, what they were doing to the nature of creativity and why it was significant. But when I started to do yoga, it was, it came through the person yourself. And the other thing that was important to was music. Through the dancing, music had a, a very riveting impact and it touched you on many, many levels. And there's a lot of research work that's been done on the connection between music and the brain. That's profound. And so that actually puts you into a, a state that you wouldn't get to just by going through things in the art context. I'm talking about in the art school context. So the dancing classes 
that I went to with her, I was going to them in second half of the first year I was there. It was two years while I was doing my art course. And in the second half, the dancing classes had a, a big impact. I had to still relate it back to an art context, but I, I, I got more confidence about experiences that I had in life previous to that, that, that they were kind of confirmed more. So I suppose I felt more confident about the mystical dimension. So getting back to creativity, what I was looking for was, well, you know, what was creativity? I think in the dancing class, for example, you improvise. And music had always had a strong impact on me, even when I was a teenager, you know, 14, 15. And when I started going to dances when I was 16, I couldn't dance in a social sense. I didn't have that kind of coordination. I danced in, in kind of an expressionistic kind of way, which didn't get me very far because, you know, if I was dancing with some girl, it'd be one dance because she wouldn't dance with me again after that. <laughs> <laughs> Too much expression. <laughs> so I, had to kind of, I had to kind of work it out around the dance floor, you know, when it was really packed because I used to go to the bowl, which was in the city, it was called the bowl back in 1964. And with the kinks or whatever, you really got me. And it's kind of really got this incredible energy from the music. And so I just go somewhere else on the dance floor where someone hadn't seen me. So then I could get a few dances that way. <laughs> but that never lasts. <laughs> Even halfway through, they might, you know, disappear. Because it was back in those days, you were kind of more or less doing your own thing, but there was a certain, I suppose, a certain etiquette about it. And I wasn't, my side of it wasn't very well done, the etiquette side of it. Anyway, getting back to the point with dancing, improvisation was a very important thing. So what you were doing is you weren't thinking things through. You were actually going, the music took you to a certain place, and in that place you responded. So it could be at an instinctive level. It could be at an intuitive level. It could even be in a bright mind kind of level. So you could be, because Mrs. Manjimali talked in terms of the chakras and the music. So that, for example, Karl Heinz Stockhausen was really you know, kind of high up in the atonal music. We did some amazing things in creative yoga, for example. They manifested in forms that, that you would never normally do. So when we're talking about creativity, we're talking about beyond the habitual. What's beyond the habitual? What we do as a habit. So... Creativity is something that you don't do as a habit, something that you do that kind of is unique to this moment and something that's new. So in the, those dancing classes, it could be Stockhausen could go on and then there would be this an, an opening in a, with the Arjuna Chakra, not in the kind of, you know, all the bright lights and the kind of stuff that you get with meditation, but in, in terms of action. So meditation itself can be passive. But dancing and art is actually implementation. So it's really got much more to do with both karma and bhakti yoga. Particularly the dancing, the music, bhakti yoga is very important because the sense of beauty is a big deal. The work, the nature, that's something I'd like to get back to about the nature of karma yoga because when it comes to sumie and, and shodo, we're looking at the nature of what is action and what is action which is in harmony with the with the dharma and what is not. You know, so that's we'll come back to that later. So in creativity, I suppose that sounds a little bit of what you were saying, but the music a very strong impact. And so if, if there are other pieces of music too. I mean, I'm talking now about something that's a long time ago and the mangala has been kind of going on for over 50 years now and I haven't been dancing for quite a long time. So it's kind of, you know, going back a long way. My energy has gone into other directions because I've got a family and I've got, which I didn't have a nose, I didn't have any girlfriends until I was, I don't know, how old. Then, then things kind of changed. So, so getting back to the art side of things, you know, you asked about creativity. I think 
I did find it a bit of a dilemma because I was having strong experiences in the dancing classes as a student and I did find it difficult to kind of get back and justified in terms of an art context. So I did actually find that hard. Perhaps I'll take the business of creativity into painting now. Can I do that? When I was at art school, I I became quite crippled at a certain point because I did take it very seriously and I, I felt at a certain stage that all my gestures and all my marks were contaminated. And what I meant by that was that they were contaminated in the sense that they were either willful or they were egotistical, whereas I'd had other experiences which I felt were more significant. They were kind of a contribution, I suppose you can say, to something that's higher than just that kind of mind space. So for a long time I was paralysed, and I think I did actually find that by with the yoga practice and the dancing practice in the conversation with Mrs. Manjumali, I did actually find that I had the capacity to kind of carry on. So although I was having strong experiences in the dancing class, which I couldn't translate so easily into the painting and into the art classes at, at Preston, it gave me consistency and stamina to actually keep on going. And in the end, I did write things up in terms of creativity in that context. But getting back to the mark making, when I was younger in primary school, we, we operated from the Victorian school readers. And I can't remember what grade it was in, maybe fourth grade or something like that. But in that reader was uh, an extract from Scott of the Antarctic, his diary. He was kind of like basically dying at that stage. And I was reading a story about that. And my mother, and I was very taken by this handwriting because I thought, you know, here's someone who's kind of like, it's freezing cold. They can't write properly. They're under the most extreme conditions. They're kind of composing themselves to write this last entry, in, entry into the diary. This is when I was, I don't know nine or something, and my mother came out and she said, what are you copying that writing for? And I said, because, it's, you know, it's, got, it's got, got all of this in it. And she said, no, it's bad writing. Don't kind of, you know, write like that. I wouldn't want you to be, what shall we say, people, teachers won't understand you kind of thing. So, so she didn't see because she was a mother and she, was kind of, she didn't kind of get where I was coming from. But when I go back, I can see now what I was saying, it was something kind of significant about that piece of writing. It wasn't just... A personal. It was a diary, and but it was kind of it had an impact much broader than that. So when I went to art school, and I was talking about art. I wasn't actually necessarily thinking about that letter then, but that business of making a mark where you're contaminated by something. And in the dancing class, it became even more clear to me because you transformed in a dancing class so that if the music had a certain quality, let's say, for example, if it was a fire quality and it came from a, one of the Indian ragas or the bells of Bengal, something like that, and you were kind of getting it right and the teacher could see that, and then you'd kind of feel that you were, you were actually in another space and it wasn't a, a contaminated form. So I suppose what's happened with the painting, because of my background's in art and always has been with art, I, I love music. I did love music, but I didn't, I, that door wasn't open to me because of my medical condition. I couldn't go so far. So I, I put my energy back into painting and I was teaching painting at Mangala from the 19, early 1980s. And you were a student at that stage. I think that, that photograph was, would have taken about 1988. Yeah, that so seems that, about that, right. That, that's, <laughs> what Mia, that's what Mia said. So Mrs. Manjimeli was in, encouraging me of, to do that. Can I detail you yes. a little bit, Richard? Yeah. Because a lot of people might not know what Sumier painting is and oh, okay. what brush painting yes. is. Would yes. you like to describe it a bit? Oh, okay. Well, when I was at art school, that's the other side of things. So in the last part of the 
second last year, 1972. I'd been doing yoga for most of the year. And then uh, a friend organised for Andre Solia, a Swedish or Frenchman originally became he became a Swedish citizen, but he went to live in Japan and he was very taken by the martial arts. And so he gave a demonstration of Japanese Kyudo, which is Zen Archery, and Sumie. And when I saw that demonstration, the world stopped. And for two days, I kind of walked around just to thinking, wow. And all of this kind of stuff that I had in my mind before in terms of, how can I say, not being able to work properly because I felt something was contaminated, that changed because I felt that with Andre, when he actually made a stroke, with Sumie, for example, Sumie is painting, it's a Japanese painting monochrome. It comes out of Zen meditation. There are all types of Sumie painting in Japan these days where you, it looks not much different to, say, watercolour. But the main thrust and what's where Japan's significant as far as this is concerned is from the Zen monks and the people who are the literati who are connected with that space rather than it being just pretty paintings. So it's, it's kind of charged with a certain energy and, and power which comes out of the meditation. And, of course, it's a Buddhist practice. So Did you even describe, like, is it the seven treasures, like the ink stick and the oh, yes, stone yes. and how even preparing to paint is an exercise in meditation? Thanks, Joe. Oh, perhaps I'll use the example of Andre to start with. So I didn't notice it. You know, how can I put it? It was the painting which itself which really had an impact on me. But when I look at Andre, when he came in, he had his hakama on, the Japanese, well, the Japanese kind of uniform virtually, and he said, down on in Vajrasan, and he mixed up the ink on the ground, and he had a large Suzuri, which is an inkstone. So you spoke before about the four treasures. So there's the inkstone, there's the ink stick, there's the brush, and there's the paper, and all these kind of people say there are more treasures, and there's the water as well. You know that's something we can get into a discussion about. So Andre came in and sat down, and he mixed up the ink. Excuse me, backwards and forwards. So. With an ink stick, it's like a slate, and it comes from certain parts of mostly China because it's in terms of resisting water going through it and and having a certain kind of texture. So the ink is made from carbon. From Mostly these days it's made from vegetable oils, and there's usually camphor there as well or some kind of perfume and a glue. And these are, in Japan, they're, it's handmade virtually. They use moulds, but there's a lot of kind of labour-intensive aspects to it, that's not machinery. Anyway, so you have this kind of beautiful ink stick in your hand, you have the ink stone, and then you start to actually mix, you pour the water, and then you start to mix the ink. And as you mix the ink, you feel your posture and you feel your breathing and you just quieten down. Now, the ink mixing can go on for for painting. It doesn't have to go. Literally, it takes a long time, but for painting can go on for, you could make an ink in 15 minutes, I suppose, but more than likely it would take up to half an hour. I mean, it used to, when I was doing coloured ink, it used to take me about three to four hours to mix ink, so that was a long meditation practice. And then you would start by either strokes that you know or you could be working from a tehon, a model, and you would just simply sit there and it might be bamboo stroke and you watch the stroke. So you just come down and you go through the simple act of making a, a movement with the hand and being conscious of what goes on in the paper. So all of these things like a slowing down of action itself so that you're, you're kind of getting to the source of action so that you, you mix 
to make the mind empty and receptive. I'm talking about the mixing process. And then you start simply. And then you actually go through, well, even if you just did the practice, I'm saying if you work from a model and you didn't do anything creative yourself, even if you simply did that, you're kind of going into another space. And in that space, you see things quite differently and you get to see where you react because most of the time we've got two things happening. We're creatures of habit or we react to what someone else or some situation does. We're not really creating. We're not initiating the process. So even to go through that act of mixing up the ink, etc., will take you to a space where you can perceive this. Now, it's a bit of a joke because it's a contradiction, and that's another thing that's important. When I was studying yoga, I thought, that's impossible. The teacher would say something and say, that's impossible. Yes, in my mind. And then I just keep on going. And then the idea that it's impossible falls away. And then you just kind of go into another space. Because the reason I brought that up was because, I mean, if you're going through the process of mixing ink every day and painting every day, that's a habit. So that's a thing that I'm supposed to be trying to get away from. But there are those kind of contradictions all of the time, both in yoga and in in Zen. But I, I don't, how can I put it? Perhaps my lack of power as far as the rational world is concerned allows me to get off more lightly, but people normally would want to have a consistent answer. Because of that experience of going in and defining the impossible quite acceptable or contradiction quite making sense, I don't have that kind of problem. So in some ways I'm not much of a good teacher when it comes to people who are operating in a very rational sort of way because if everything is can be put down to that equation. We'd be good computers, but I, I think there's something else in yoga. So so that process that you spoke about, so there's ink mixing and preparing for the, the practice, and then there's a kind of relationship between the brush and the body and the breathing, etc. They're all really, how can I put it, a cross between pranayama, dhyana, and karma yoga action. That all... It's all a part of the equation. So you're slowing everything down so that that can occur. I have another layer I'd like to add, if I may. Yes. I feel like there's a very different relationship with ego and with humbleness in Sumier painting compared to, like, other art styles like abstract expressionism where the artist is really the hero and it's all about their gesture and it's very outcome-based, whereas Sumier painting, it's more about you're doing the art to get to a particular state of mind and you can't even be too attached to that because you can't sit down and be like, right, now I'm going to get calm. I've had a terrible day. (laughs) Grind that ink into that stone. And it's a very humble practice because I've heard you say many times that people might practice for 50 or 60 years to get to a level that they consider a beginner. (laughs) Because you're practicing each mark, like especially with calligraphy, you might just practice that one little stroke to be a larger character And without you trying to, with you trying to actually be as accurate as you possibly can, each stroke will be slightly different. And so it's not creativity as a, like, big dramatic gesture. Mm. It's more tapping into that innate creativity that's within us always and to kind of create space for it to blossom. Well, I think that you brought up quite a few things, Joe. Firstly, I'd like to go back to abstract expressionism in a minute. But the humble space that you're talking about, I think that's what struck me because when I was at art school, it 
the motivation seemed to be largely a psychological. It could be explained psychologically. And I actually didn't believe, I, I thought art was something beyond that. So that was, that's always been an understanding. So I've always felt there's something else. And when I saw Andre demonstrate both the archery and Tremier, I felt that he, he had kind of humbled himself and through Andre's a bit different because he was an incredible technician and he was very dedicated and, you know, anyone would be a, a magician. Like, I mean, anyone watching would just be amazed. So he had that, that technical skill, but I felt nevertheless that there was a kind of, there was something else going on, something more, how can I put it, where you felt that you were dealing with an essence or something which was not, which was kind of of the universe or I'm trying to find the right words for it now, but I'm not doing a very good job. But there is this other dimension. There is a humbleness. That, and to get there, to get there to that other dimension, humbleness is, is one way. I mean, ultimately there's humbleness, but humbleness, what in, induces the humbleness can vary. I mean, you might become humble because something terrible has happened and you're kind of in shock and you just you become humble because it's beyond you. You might become humble because you're a a person, and that's a point I'd like to get to with the abstract expressionists. I think with art, I think there is a, the people who operated in the 40s, 50s and 60s, in, particularly in America, but in other places, also in Europe and in Japan actually too in the 50s, they were very sincere. They were, they were looking very hard to try and find you know, what this other thing was. And so they may, sometimes it surprises me because I hear back almost from people that I might have thought, better of, that the kind of motivation is is a certain level of pride or recognition or whatever, I think there was another process going on and the critics were quite happy to put the artists in their box and quite often the artists would listen to the critics, but things were thrown up. I mean, D.T. Suzuki was visiting the US in the 50s, in the early 50s. America was actually very open to things. It was only I think even in the late 40s. But things were happening. If we look at for example, Mark Toby, he was active in, I think, even the 30s. Some of the paintings that he did from that time. Now, his, his motivation is not really an egotistical one. I think there's, we have to be a bit careful about that. I, I suppose the difference is there that for people to be able to operate on that level of art that those people are operating on, is a very, there's very few people that can do that. So it's quite a it's quite a, a small group of people. So it's like a club, or it's a, there's something exclusive about it. I actually feel that without getting all of the the other stuff that goes with it, you know, the great deep insights, you know, that you can you can talk about it and you can argue about. It, I think a more average type person can have experiences of of art or of creativity, which are quite humble, but they are quite significant to their lives. It's quite an important part of their life. So and I'm actually quite interested in that part of it too. Well, actually, I didn't pre-prepare you for this <laughs> question, so I hope this is okay. Yeah. But this is really sounding like the territory you explore in your Unfolding Self workshop. Oh, Would right. you like to share a little bit about that? Oh, yes, yeah. There is a skill aspect to Sumio painting. And in Japan, skill is very, very, very important. And the level of discipline and skill the Japanese would accept as being acceptable, you know, would be okay with, is generally speaking much, 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 much beyond what a kind of extroverted 
wild barbarian type Western can cope with. So the question is, does that mean just have to shy away from this and have nothing to do with it? No. I felt the treasures were treasures and if you were in the right frame of mind, you could come to them in a humble sort of way and you would benefit from it spiritually. So as far as the unfolding self is concerned, a combination of my years of dancing at Mangala's Creative Dancing, I mean, as I say, I haven't done it for a long time, but I, I did do it for probably 20 years or so. The other thing too is I don't get bored. I'm probably a bit boring. Sometimes my wife tells me about that, but <laughs> <laughs> but I don't get bored. So I am quite happy to each day do my yoga practice, and I, I do it every day. But the same with calligraphy and sumier, I do it every day. So there's the creative dance practice, and there's, there's just this whole thing of doing it every day and adjusting it in, in connection with my own yoga practice as well. So with that experience, I felt well, even though I had – at contact, my teachers of calligraphy, for example, have been Japanese, and Andre Solia taught where the, the skill was the most important thing. So, despite that, I feel that there is that you can access one's kind of deeper inner aspect, one's kind of something that's hidden for a lot of the time through the practices of painting and yoga, it done the right way. So, the unfolding self is not about something that you display. It's about the person coming because they, they might be looking for relaxation, but there's something inside them that goes a bit deeper than that and they're looking for something else. And even if it's only temporary because, you know, there be people who criticise that approach because they say, well, you know, people can just come and have a workshop and, and leave and, it's, you know, what have they done? But I think they can have an insight. It's possible to have an insight in that situation. So in the unfolding self, for example, what happens there is I'm not relying on people to come with skill. People can come in and they're a raw beginner. But I, the one thing that won't work are cynics because it's just you can't operate when, you, you know, when you're questioning all the time. You've got to actually you have an experience. I tried to create the experience from, from the yoga practice, from the chanting, et cetera, et cetera. They have a, an experience. Then we actually take it into the painting. Something could be set up. There could be an arrangement on the table that relates to the what's happened in the yoga section or there could be a poem and people respond to that. And I encourage them to not be so kind of almost paint with their eyes closed because I'd like them to get some kind of feeling and then to make marks on the page and then to, what can we say, to feel that they're, they're kind of something is coming out of them. So they're going through a process of action in an environment where they feel there's, where they're not really feeling an egotistical space or uh, an intimidated space, there's, that's not happening at all. It's something else that's going on, something kind of deeper of a spiritual nature, and that's get, that gets expression. And by making by making the marks, I mean they, they could just be a bit of a scribble. I, I'm a bit wary about people showing their work to others because they wouldn't understand the process. So the people often just make marks. At that moment when they made the marks, in, um, in the circumstances under which they made them, there was, that was an event and it was a significant event. And so that can remain in their memory. And so with other things that they might do, it could be got by going to other yoga class or it could be that they they go to the country or go to Central Australia or whatever, and they that adds to their experience and gives them a bit more confidence to understand there's that kind of spiritual or 
I say spiritual now, but I actually see them all connected as body, mind, spirit as one, but it just gives them a bit more insight or, or, or confidence. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll add as well, the materials that you use for ink brush painting, they're almost like your collaborators and they don't always help you. Like the painting, the paper is rice paper, so it's often very blurry and the brushes have their own personalities (laughs) and state of mind. So it's not like drawing with a pencil on paper. Like you could drop some ink and it will blur out in different ways that you weren't expecting and Mm. like the brush can be dry or it can be wet and that will respond in different ways. So it is a great lesson in non-attachment and it encourages you to be more experimental and more free in some ways, even though there is also that traditional aspect of it, which really is about trying to replicate the forms as precisely as you can. So it's an interesting dichotomy there. And I think the not trying to make anything different and the replicating can help you get into that meditative state of mind, which can help you be more free when it's time to be free because it's like you've decluttered a bit. Mm. Mm. You can be more present with it. It's well put, Joe. Look, I think another thing to add to non-attachment is also trust. By nature, cynical and that's good to a certain point. I mean, you know, we've educated, although these days with fake news around and God knows what else going on, we probably could afford to be a, a bit more distrustful. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but in ourselves, though, we should be able to – it's hard to kind of extricate ourselves from all those other influences and, you know, and to feel a state of trust because I, my background is that I very – I went to a, an academic school and it was, everything had to be empirical and everything was a result of conditioning, so you couldn't trust any of your own experiences. And it was all that kind of – that was the kind of background I have. I don't think you have it like at these days unless you – maybe at uni you might, but not at high school. Kind of a different, different kind of world, I suppose. But I, I think – I think, and generally speaking, people are more confident these days like, compared to a generation or two ago. But I think still trust is an important thing. It's an important ingredient for beauty because beauty is – Things that are very important in yoga, beauty and love. And, you know, I'm talking about those things, but just beauty can be seen as something, say, seductive or it can be belittled. But because I've had so many experiences which are beautiful and they're very constructive, I don't agree with that approach. And so I would say uh, even though we're painting like the, the medium itself, it comes from Buddhist origins. I'm not a Buddhist, but it comes from Buddhist origins. So there's that kind of aspect of detachment, as you're saying, non-attachment and that space, etc. But I think a very important thing is beauty and love. And I think that's when, you, when you're teaching, it's not personal love. I mean, it's, it's not kind of like, how can I put it, vested interest in some way or other. It's not that kind of thing. It's, it's the fact that uh, people... People are special in themselves, and when you're relating to people as a teacher of yoga, then you're addressing that kind of part of a person which is open to the nature of beauty and the nature of love. And that was the thing that I never, ever thought I'd be saying at my age because it wasn't cool to say that when I was younger. But I think that's a very important ingredient in the whole process, and I think that's one of the reasons why music's very important too because I think that happens quite easily in music. Yeah. Hello, Ron here. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the future of the Flow Artist 
podcast. We've mentioned this a couple of times already, but we've decided to change things up on the podcast just a little bit. We really love creating the podcast, but it does take a lot of our time. So we're going to let go of the fortnightly schedule after episode 100, and this is currently episode 98. We've also decided that we won't focus on yoga quite as much, and we really just want to speak with individuals that we're passionate about in a more diverse sphere. Episode 100 will be a very special episode where we get to reminisce over the last three years and we're going to experiment a little bit and try live streaming it. We're going to live stream this special episode on Facebook and Twitch on Sunday evening at 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Exciting stuff. Alright, let's get back to our conversation with Richard Lidicott. So this leads me into a question that we spoke about earlier. So I know you had a period of teaching both art and yoga in schools and you teach adults as well. Yes. So I'd love your thoughts on the differences and the similarities between teaching kids and teaching adults and teaching art and teaching yoga. Oh, okay. That's All right. And maybe a funny story that you have to share. I have taught in schools. I didn't teach for very long. I only taught for a couple of years and I taught high school kids and I taught year... Well, I taught a whole range, but as far as yoga was concerned, I taught art and I also taught yoga as an elective. It doesn't exist anymore, but Lawler Technical School. And I think it was, I'm not going to remember what it is now, it's form three, what's that? Year nine and year 11 students were going to that school and they came and had yoga lessons as an elective. Now, they were really nice kids, I must say, at that school. So they loved the relaxation. Now, we did exercises and they were kind of quite good at that and they varied a lot because some kids were really quite stiff while other kids were actually very flexible and actually found probably a bit boring for them, not two of those. But by and large, they, they mostly all liked the relaxation to the point that at one stage they got into the class early and they wrote on, on the board Take us to the moon, Mr. Lidicott. That, that was, <laughs> they loved the relaxation, so they wanted to go to the moon. So that was that was you know how much they you know they got out of that a lot. They, they, they and so obviously, some creativity found your way into <laughs> to yoga classes as well. So that was that was nice. So they're really nice kids. So I had them for a couple of years, and so that was that was something I did there. And I I also taught kids at Princess Hill after school program, but. That was an elective after school, and a lot of them, the whole idea was that people in the in VCE were under stress and the school wanted an avenue for them to de-stress. But I think they had their own studies or some of them stayed for a while. There's a few of them, but they didn't have to kind of come back, so it, it fell away. But there were a few stayers, and they were actually quite understanding of the of the um, philosophic aspects of yoga, actually. They were quite with it, really, for you know their age. And they did enjoy doing the physical part of it as well. But then again, they had other commitments, so they fell away. Well, on. As one of your tu- your students from a child, <laughs> and like in your Saturday morning classes, yes. I do think that you did a really beautiful job of weaving in meditation and aspects of yoga philosophy. And I can't remember whether you articulated it or whether that was just the energy that you taught from. But I felt like I absorbed a lot of that in your painting classes, even though they were they were painting classes rather than yoga classes. I really felt that energy in there. 
And I'd like to share one memory that I had oh, yes, from yes, one of your yes, classes. Yes. It was a really hot day and everyone was all hot and bothered and we'd all set up for our, our treasures. We're out, our ink stick and our ink stone and our bowl of water. And you just got us to blow on the bowl of water mm. and just that simple breath flow and the coolness radiating off the bowl of water mm. and mm. the ripples in the water, mm. I remember as a very meditative moment. Oh, that's, that's good. You so. Well, I think, as you say, Joe, you know, you walk into a class and you've got to be in the moment. So creative is about being kind of really with it in the moment. So I probably had something else, another agenda, but it's constant that it, what I have gets thrown out the door. Bunch of hot, grumpy kids showed up. <laughs> <laughs> no, the kids, the, 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 but, but actually going back to that, when we were learning to teach, Mrs. Manager Merle used to have a class on a Tuesday morning for teachers, and she did this in the dancing classes too with the people who had been coming for a while, where she would suddenly say, okay, you take the class now. Don't think about it. Take it now. You didn't have any preparation at all, and you were put, completely put on the spot, and you had to take the class. So you had to kind of pull it from somewhere else. So that kind of principle of being able to pull something down in the moment was a part of creative dancing and also a part of creative yoga. I probably wouldn't have had the courage to do that if it wasn't for those kind of examples because I would have seen that as being some kind of, I don't know, I, I, would, I would have kind of looked at the knowledge aspect of it as being more important. But because of her, because of her presence, it was different. So that, that set the whole tone of Mangala and it's, just, it's the way things still happen there. They still People, teachers do plan things there, but there's always this potential for something to happen in the moment because it's an event and the event. So an event is a recognition that you're in this moment and something special is happening in this moment so that you're focused in this moment. So in terms of creativity, I think, you know, that that's a good example that you gave before, yes. And I know one of the things that you did want to talk about as well is Mrs. Manjamelli was the, the founder of Mangala oh, yes. and she was a very special person. Yes. But actually... Peter and oh, yeah. some other teachers have carried on her legacy a lot longer than the time that she was there, and Mangala is still going in a slightly different form. Would you just like to share about that aspect of the Mangala journey? Because it's a place that's figured in a lot of our other guests' early memories of yoga and Melbourne, and some people think it's gone now, but that's not actually the case. No, that's true. Well, firstly, I have to say the main thrust of the teaching at Mangala has been yoga and creative dancing. So I'm a bit of an outsider in a way, and I've, I have taught at Mangala over the years, and I've taught with Peter the summer schools with yoga, and that you know, wasn't that long ago that we stopped teaching those. But uh, what I would like to say, I, so I feel a bit unqualified in a way to say that, but I'll, I'll say what I can, but I feel a bit, you know, I, I say it with reservation. But what I would like to say was, when Mrs. Manchamelli passed away, it was a pretty hard act to follow. And I think the, the – I don't know how Peter and – well, Peter would have been older than Susanna and Claudia, I think, but it must have been in the early 30s or something like that. So what happened was that, you know, it fell on their lap. That, that responsibility was an amazing thing. And they had to kind of keep this thing alive after she'd gone. And so they did it. 
so you never people kind of imagine that you couldn't do that, but they did. I mean, it's in their flavour, not with Mrs. Mashimali's personality, but nevertheless, what she was teaching about about the quality of the music and the relationship of the music to dancing, and the, the nature of yoga, and really, it's pretty much what she was teaching. However, of course. Those people, there's the three of them that were the principals of the school. There's also core teachers who have been there for a long time, like Fran and Kathy, who used to be called Nina. They've kept it going as well. But I, I must say that I, if I had the capacity to give awards out, and I don't think they're interested in awards anyway, I'd have to give them credit because it's to be respected that they could keep something like that going for, well, actually, you know, the 86. The school started started going for 16 years and it's still going in different form, but it's still going. And Claudia's retired now. But, you know, when children's dancing class with Susanna or yoga classes with Peter, it's still, going, it's still there. Fran's still teaching dancing as well. Kathy's teaching. So people who are looking for that kind of thing are still there. Just so, and it's, so that's it's, it's an amazing feat that that's being done. And I suppose in my way I'm doing it to my own kind of slant because I suppose painting pulls you a little bit further away from the spirit of dancing and yoga because music's such a fundamental part to that and it's something better kind of manage without. So that's, that's the main thing. It's still going on. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. And also another thing that we wanted to go into, which has been a curveball for all of us, 2020 and still continuing into 2021. And I imagine for you, especially because you don't interface with technology in the way that a lot of other yoga teachers can, how have you navigated being able to be a yoga teacher without being able to see your students? And what effect has that had on your own practice and on your state of mind? And yeah, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts. Well, I, I miss them a lot. I mean, you've got, I've got my family and um, we're going on very well, our family. And that, there's that side of life. But something happens that's different with, with yoga and the students couldn't, I couldn't really reach them through Zoom. Fortunately, I had a teacher who does replace me when I go away, and they were, they were used to her, and she had some good, good sessions with Zoom through the Maribyrn Community Centre, for example. But I would ring her up and just ask her how students are going, you know, because the, the I, I couldn't just forget about them. So it was that was hard. I, I knew some of them. I mean, I've got a couple of students that have been coming for over 30 years. So I was in contact with them anyway. But that sharing of that kind of yoga dimension that comes in a class wasn't happening. I did a lot of yoga at home myself. I mean, I, sometimes I have quite short sessions of yoga because I've got to go up early and leave early. It might only be for 45 minutes, but the classes, I usually spend two hours a day with yoga uh, during the break. Uh, as you can see with my room, I'm not very good with the normal kind of functioning things like house maintenance. I, I should have been doing that over the time, but I said I was actually looking at uh, the nature of calligraphy and painting and thinking about it from my own artistic point of view, but also thinking about how to teach it. So I was doing that, but it wasn't the same as ha having contact with the students. I was lucky enough to do yoga in the park, which I did for three students, and that was that was really nice to have that. That was a really big change after not having a class, but I find the room, so you do it in a contained space is even more powerful. I like nature, but I think in a space when something kind of bounces off the wall somehow, it's just it's different. And we've had a couple of sessions. I did have some sessions with my Mary yoga classes, five sessions at the end of last year, and that was fantastic. And it wasn't a normal venue. It was actually at Green Monday Studios where Mangala used to be. 
but uh, that was really good. And, we, and since, you know, we, we had a few sessions this year, so it was really nice. But uh, as I said before, I don't talk about it very openly, but when I look at it, really, the core of teaching of yoga gets back to love and beauty, really. And so I guess you've touched on this a little bit, but I think the eternal struggle of yoga teachers and artists is how to find the balance between teaching and practice. And I guess to put that another way is between remaining sustainable financially and doing all the things that you need to do to be a citizen of the world in this age and the things that you might do that feel like they have a higher purpose or are more enjoyable. Look, Joe, that's a pretty good one. I think I was lucky in a way. Well, I was unlucky in the first place because I, you know, I had I didn't realise I had these disabilities, so I pushed myself on with them. And uh, at some kind of in my late twenties, I had a breakdown, and so out of that, I ended up being superannuated out of teaching. So I was in a position then where I was getting some kind of pension, and I went back to teaching at different stages. But because I've had a sound problem, that I didn't last very long because I was in a, I was like a zombie. And the principal said, well, "What's going on?" So I couldn't continue. And so my position is has been easier than it has been for people who have to make a living from it. I mean, I still have to I still have to struggle to make pay for all the bills, even with that now. But I think for other people it's much, much harder. I don't know I would have survived. I think I probably would have had to get some other kind of job and done yoga. As, as for my own interest, and I might have had one or two classes if I was lucky. I don't think I would have had the same level of uh, involvement that I've got now. I'm lucky. I'm sure you've spoken to different people, and I think it's a hard one to follow because I'm very idealistic, and I think some things I probably wouldn't do, and people who have to make a living are forced to do those things. So I think I'm a bit remote uh, from that. I think the other thing, though, there is something in answer to that, I think teaching, I have to, I've had to make some of my income is from teaching, which it needs to be. And so what's happened there is I put a lot of time into my preparation, not deliberately, but I spend a lot of time with my own practice. And then because of that, I'm in a very, I can just draw things out of a hat in a, in a yoga class. And the same thing with the painting. I spend a lot of time, well, they're, they're more deliberate. The painting classes are more deliberate because the ability to make someone transform as you can in, a, in the yoga class, because you're basically following the lady in the yoga class. But in a painting class, there's this whole thing about art and people being an individual that you've got to negotiate. So it's a much harder process. So it's harder like that. But anyway, getting back to it, in juggling, juggling things as far as teaching is concerned, my own work and being a family, also having a family, my own work has been has been cut back. So I don't I don't expect. There was a point where I would have kind of thought in terms of making a statement as an artist, as a professional artist, I don't think I can do that. You know, I'm not in that position. So I've, I've sacrificed that, that part for the other thing. So that's one thing. So I suppose, though, there are certain there are certain sacrifices in answer to the question people have to make. It's a balancing act balance for out. everyone. There, there are sacrifices. So that you, you'll kind of there'll be things that you really like and you'd really hate to let go of those things, but you'll have to let them go to, to, if that's a priority. So sacrifice is probably the, the key. And sacrifices are talking about all the time, innovators. So I don't think, I mean, it, you know, have everything these days as a mentality. You can have it all kind of mentality, but I don't go along with that. 
I think there is a time where you have to, some things you just, you know, unless you're very well just gifted, you've got everything under the sun, but you've kind of got everything to back you up. But no, I think there's a certain level of sacrifice. I mean, it's not, I don't, it's not a bad thing. It's just a choice you make as far as you move into this area instead of that area. But it, but it means that you've attached to the thing that you've left behind. And so there's a sacrifice to it, but you don't, you keep on moving. And I guess that leads into our final question, mm. which is the flip side of sacrifice, distillation. If you had to distill everything that you've learned and everything that you share and everything that you teach down into one key essence, <laughs> what would that be? Do you mean me personally or me as a teacher? Either. Yeah. Either or both. From my, just as an individual, I feel the koshas are made up of the five sheets. So you have the anam, which is a food sheet, and you've got the pranic sheet, and you've got the mental sheet, and you've got the inspired mental sheet, and you've got anandam, this sheet. I actually feel that the anandam is an important point that we have to remember. If when we're when we're actually under the pressure, a lot of different pressures that we have, we have to actually draw on that and. I don't think that's a simple answer that can be used. It's not necessarily what the psychologists would be advocating, where you're kind of taking control of yourself and everything like that. I think that that dimension, one has to be a bit careful about being, about holding on to it at all costs and then you know, everything falls apart. I think that's not healthy. There's a kind of a healthy attitude. So looking at everyone's situation, I think you have to look and see what's healthy in that situation, but I think that's something that I wouldn't, well, who knows, I'm not dead yet, but um, I don't imagine that I would be um, letting go of, I wouldn't be sacrificing that. So that's my answer to that. I think as far as other people are concerned, people that I'm teaching, just I think everybody has a, uh, at the end of yoga class, when we um, we stand, so we stand and we feel our, our dignity, and we feel our, we stand here and we come to get in this position. So we stand there, we feel our uprightness and we feel ourselves also not influenced by anything else. So it was an inner, inner, inner dignity. Not, I don't, this is not egocentric. This is, this is just where we don't feel intimidated because a lot of the time we're, we're intimidated by this opinion or that opinion. We don't feel intimidated. When we're actually standing there and we're quiet in ourselves and what then is, you know, what's important, I think, we need to have that capacity in some way or other. So some people might be religious. They might be very Christian, or they might be certain faith, or certain faith. And that's true. That's that's how that's their real nature. So I think it's about the, their nature, finding their their own nature. So I'm not. I said to people in the class, oh, "This is not my vision. This is your your. What's your nature?" So I think that's the key for for everybody. And so the first one was my my own. You know, angle on it, and the second one is what I would say to most other people. I think it's a shame that we're seeing, unfortunately, we're seeing this thing where people are saying, "Well, no, that's wrong. It's, this is this is the right way of doing it, and if you don't do it this way, you, you're deluded." You know, this is—I I don't believe that. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Richard, for everything that you've shared through this conversation and everything you've shared from with me through almost my whole life, really. Like, when did I start coming to your classes? Seven, I think. Seven, yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> through many formative years. And... Well, you were doing dancing to start with and, and, and then, then you came to painting. 
Because actually, don't forget, we the painting classes, the connection was that the painting was the centering for the dancing. That's how they started. So Mrs. Manager Miller said, oh, no, they need to just kind of come and settle before they go into the dancing class. So we started off, that's what we did, and then the painting just got bigger and bigger. So that in Marion, Marion came in and she actually did design. I'm not sure if you – do you remember Marion? Uh, yeah, I remember Marion, yeah. Well, so Marion actually brought uh, design into the classes. So they were – there were people who were kind of had outside skills and they brought them in, but then those kind of things – we did those kind of things also in the teachers' classes back in the early days. So, yeah. Look, Joe, it's been a pleasure too, and Ran too. I, I, it's a pleasure because you've come along. You were more new than, 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 than Joe, but, no, thanks. Thank you very oh, much. Thank too. you. Yeah, yeah, such yeah, a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you Thank too. you for welcoming us into your inner sanctum <laughs> art space. <laughs> and that's okay. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit tidy than normally. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Richard. I have to say I'm a little bit in awe of him. He's been practicing yoga for longer than I've been alive. I think it's fair to say that he's had a profound impact on Joe's life. So we've been really wanting to speak with him since before the podcast began. For our next episode, we'll be speaking with Beata Heyman. Beata is a yoga teacher with over 950 hours of training in yoga, trauma-informed practices, breathwork and sound. She's a lecturer for Australian Yoga Academy's Advanced Yoga Teacher Training and she runs Breath Circle, a mindful breathing organisation which teaches mindful breathing in schools to support emotional regulation and mental health in young people. Look out for that episode in three weeks' time. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get us music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>